and welcome to the Brunton Bugle, a podcast focusing on the trials and tribulations of Cali United Football Club. From Frank Barton to Jared Branthwaite and Derek Asamoah to Warren Aspinall, we've got it covered. Today we're bringing you one of our special episodes and I'm sure it's going to be a belter. We're going to be speaking to John Coleman, the Cali United reporter for the News and Star and Cumberland News, who has a new book out, Bolts from the Blues, telling the story of 40 different Cali United goals from 1960s to present day. John, thanks for joining me today. Um... I'm going to read out actually the blurb from the back because I think that gives you a better idea of what the book's about than my little bit there. So from the back of the book, it says here, from the 1960s to the present day, the men behind some of Cal United's most memorable moments relive the days and nights that made their mark and open up on their Brunton Park careers. This book celebrates promotion heroes, cup winners, giant killers, relegation saviours, history makers and scorers of the strange, stunning and spectacular. From Murray to Murphy, Halpin to Hawley, Rafferty to Reeves, Wake to Win Stanley, Poskett to Pericard, Bridges to Branfoyt and Granger to Glass. These are goals that inspired the Cali United team supporters. Told by the stars who scored them. John, thank you for joining me. Really do appreciate taking your time out to talk about the book. Yeah, um, you've written two biographies previously, John, but why did you choose this as your topic for your latest book? Well, thanks for having me on, Lee. Really appreciate no it. Um, it. It was... I don't think it was a book I was particularly planning to write um, at the start of the year and certainly going into March, it wasn't really something that was in the, in the front of my mind. Um, you know, as, as, a, as a journalist and someone that's, that's helped write a couple of books, you always have other ideas in your mind and, and yeah. I had various ideas rattling around my head about books of different sorts, whether I'd, you know, do a bit more ghostwriting or whether I'd do something Carlisle United specific, but nothing that I was really working on. Um, I thought I would just have a bit of a breather after doing Matt Janssen's because it does it does take over your life yeah. a bit. But when when COVID nineteen really came to that peak um, in in March when when football ground to a halt and then I was I was furloughed for a while, um, the, the whole idea arose from from that. It was a time when our Saturdays as football supporters and, and mine as a reporter had had suddenly ground to a halt. Um, quite an unsettling time, I think, for for a lot of people. It was just that that Saturday ritual and those routines and everything had just been put on the shelf, and and in that void came a lot of nostalgia. Um, certainly, here in, in in the Carlisle United world, we had we had Radio Cumbria producing classic commentaries, which I was listening to. Um, the club were were uploading, you know, classic games, footage of those great goals were coming on their their Twitter account and things. And I just think the Carlisle supporters in general were talking about and discussing favourite memories, favourite games, goals, all that sort of thing was was really filling the void. So it was the whole idea was inspired by that sense of of looking back into what was special. I think for for Carlisle supporters, what memories, what moments 
really resonated with them above the norm and the idea just came really from that as something that I thought was maybe it was maybe achievable in the lockdown it wasn't something I would have to go yeah. up and down the country talking to people and meeting people going into places to do heaps of research which you, you physically couldn't do while while you're confined to to your home so the idea all came from the lockdowns it was an idea very much of its time so it was it was done in it was done in, in quick time as well and I'm, I'm just pleased how it, how, it, how it turned out in the end yeah so obviously you got a bit that time in lockdown to to think about the idea for the book and then once you've come up with the idea right i'm going to do it about goals how did the process then begin if you think to yourself right i need to get this down to 40 goals and clearly you wanted it to be you couldn't from what i can see no player has more than one goal in there do they so mm-hmm. you've basically gone through and said right i'm gonna pick 40 goals how do you start that process of whittling it down to the ones you want yeah, very, very hard. I mean, it, I think the idea started quite vaguely as maybe I could do maybe 20 or then I realised that was never going to be enough because you're just missing out some, yeah. some really iconic goals. Then I crept up to 30 and as I went along, I found that I, I was I was really pleased that the vast majority of the players who I was approaching and, and putting this idea to were all responding really quickly and really enthusiastically. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of them were really engaged by the the charity side of the book as well. And, and I was finding um, it quite easy to get to these guys and, and get what I was I was wanting out, out of them, which was, you know, a bit of their time, some real insights into the memories, things I could really work and weave into a book. So it, it, it got to 30 and then I was talking to the publisher, um, Vertical Editions as well, about what, what this book would, would look like, how it would take shape, the sort of length of it. And I, I just think I got up to 40 without too much difficulty and thought well that's in terms of length in terms of what's achievable and doable uh, and making sure i pin all these stories down all these guys down then that was that was it was a good number to to round it off i I mean it was never the intention that this would be like a top 30 or top 40 or a chart me you know imposing the idea that these are the best goals or these are the most important or brilliant or whatever it was I, i really just wanted to talk to players get some get some good stories and, and write about them really and just, just relive a little bit of that magic so that's how it came together but it was whittling it down was was hard in a lot of ways yeah yeah obviously you mentioned the fact that it's not 40 best goals that's one thing that's very clear in this isn't it it's 40 i suppose interesting goals aren't there some great goals in there but there's also some goals that for instance hallam hope's goal you maybe wouldn't argue is the best goal but it's an interesting one you don't see that very often mm. at all for example and even some of the goals i mean Brian Wake's goal against Shrewsbury is not one of the greatest goal you'll ever see, but you, mm-hmm. you know what? It's an iconic goal and people remember it. So, so yeah. It, so, was it always in your head? You thinking the majority of the focus is going to be on when you've been a fan and when you your career as a reporter has been. But do you have in your mind thinking I need to get a decent number as well in prior to that time too? Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to span as much, you know, of. of, of the club's history as I reasonably could, while being conscious that, you know, the so far back that it wouldn't have been possible to go, yeah. um, whilst getting the the perspectives of the players concerned. You know, if it had been the top forty most important goals, for example, you know, you, you start at the very beginning with Jim Jim <laughs> back in, in twenty eight, and then you work forward through through a lot of the the legends of that time and. Um, and even some of more recent times that are no longer with us that, that I had to sort of sadly rule out because I was I was keen to get the perspective of the player. So I, I, I was really pleased that I was able to begin it with Huey Mack 
um, in 63 against Gateshead yeah. because I've heard a number of people talk very wistfully about this game and, and about this phenomenal legendary figure in the club's history and I, I'm really envious of the people who got to watch him in his prime and, and I spoke to Ross Brewster um, about that day against Gateshead and I, I just felt that Huey was a great a great person a great figure to start it off with I mean it's all very subjective about the choices and everything but I, I was I, I was keen to you know because that, that period in the 60s was was really the start of Carlisle's real rise into sort of serious prominence in, in, in football, you know, the promotions yeah. up to the second division and then that long stint at that level, then up to the first division. That, that, that journey was really on by then. So it would have been totally wrong to have to have not given due respect to that period. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's why Tommy Murray at Newcastle, that really famous FA Cup victory. Um, Carlisle in a League Cup semi-final, which is which is almost absurd to think of now, but but there it was in in '69 with with Frank Barton and and the, there were some obvious ones, and I was thrilled that I was able to get get to speak to these people like like Topwin Stanley about Roma and Les O'Neill in the First Division. You know, you couldn't really produce a book on iconic Carlisle goals without giving sort of due respect to really. I, I think you have to say the greatest period, greatest chunk of years. In the club's history, so I was glad I was able to do that, and I know there'll be there'll be many others that I haven't included, and some through through necessity, some through choice. But I, I hope I've spanned enough of that period, whilst also, as you say, um, really devoting a lot of the a lot of the the stuff to to my time as a fan and as a reporter over the last well thirty years or so, um, because that's where the passion comes from in the writing. Yeah. When it's when it's from your own time so try to get a bit of a blend and you know i know it'll never you can never satisfy everyone everyone has the favorites but i hope i've covered enough of enough of that stretch in in the round you know yeah. do you feel that's compared to other clubs that kind of sort of club history in the way it's covered there's sort of gaps there sometimes of stuff that gets a bit of focus for instance speaking of somebody who started following the 1990s i never really knew a huge amount about the club in the 80s it's only maybe in the last few years i've started to gather that we were a pretty decent side and i've seen obviously on the big match revisited for example when they've showed the clips of them uh playing at man city when i think that was it free free one they won that day mm, famously yeah. and things like that do you think that's something that basically then maybe needs to be gaps filled going forward for mm. fans because like you said for a lot of younger fans won't know that actually people always talk about obviously the, the mid 70s and the mid 90s but actually the mid 80s as well was the last time we were in championship level? Well, absolutely, and not just at that level, but certainly in 83-84, having a, having a real good mm -hmm. go back up to the first division, which would have been one, one heck of an achievement. And I think you're right in, in the point you make. And, and, I mean, I think, really, it's it's probably the fault of people like me whose job it is to, to write about the club and, and, and chronicle it, that we, we maybe don't give as much attention to that period as perhaps we should. It's something I touched on when, when I wrote about... Um, Pop Robson's goal. Yeah, that's what I noticed. That, yeah, that got got the promotion back to that level. The last time Carlisle ever went up to that to that level of football, which you know, which which should be it should be held in high regard. And it, it is. I think the eighties is is quite a fascinating period in Carlisle United's history because, like you, my support started right at the the back end of that decade and really sort of developed for me in the in the early nineties. But the eighties an interesting decade because it was that that peak of getting to that second division and, and with what, by all accounts, was a heck of a team with some fantastic players, you know, Mally Poskett and other other guys I spoke to, a real mm. icon of that period. There were one or two other goals that are 
I, I, I looked at including that I couldn't quite get to one or two of the guys involved and but then the 80s sort of from that that peak of of 84 it, it then became this slow and then quite rapid decline towards the end of the decade and sort of that second half when it, it was a nosedive wasn't it into much different yeah. times so no I, th- I think I think it's a period we could maybe talk about and, and write about a bit more because there's some real real great players and characters and and you know and Bob Stoko coming back and people and things like that and, and how that the club we're going to say evolved but it went the wrong way didn't it in the end and then needed another restart but yeah it was it was again it was something I was conscious to include but could could always do more, I think, on that spell because you know it seems it seems a way off at the moment that level of football, doesn't it? And yet there we were. Mm. You, you do wonder if it's maybe something to do with the fact that football in the nineteen eighties is almost seen as a little bit unfashionable, isn't it? With all the hooligan incidents and things like that, obviously mm. that people yeah. remember that maybe where the the slight sort of almost way with people forget about it comes from. Um. So yeah, we've, we've talked about the fact that you you, you went through and you picked your goals. Is there anything in particular that you wanted to include but weren't able maybe to get in contact with the player or something like that? Or is there any you feel particularly bad about leaving out? Uh, There was one or two, yeah. I mean, we talk about the 80s and um, when when you have these debates and forums Mm. online and on Twitter and things about, you know, what goals and games do you remember? There's one or two that always come up and... Um, one was one was against Newcastle in the early eighties. That that festive game when Carlisle beat a star studied Newcastle team three one. Tommy Craig scored this this, this quite glorious chip, um, and I did try I, I did try to to reach Tommy Craig and couldn't quite get there in in the time scale that I was I was working to on this book. So um, that that was a shame. I think he then he did reappear a bit later on on another <laughs> podcast or something a while later. So maybe that's one I would I, I would go back to if. If I do a sequel or anything like that, um, so yeah, there was—I mean, there was one or two. I, I was—I was quite sad that I couldn't include because you know the, the goal scorers may have passed away or they may not have been yeah. in in great health, and you know that—that's why I—I I, I guess that also kind of underlines the fact that it isn't a chart. This book—it's not a top forty because you quite simply have had to include. You know, Bill Green scoring at Chelsea, for example, and things like that. Poor Bill's no longer with us, and some of the mm-hmm. bits like Stan Bowles, you know, phenomenal hat trick against Norwich, for instance. A lot of people will have favourites like that, that that just you know, obviously Stan's not in great health either. Those would have been you know close to impossible to really do justice to from from the perspective of the of the person. So, yeah, there's always going to be limitations with something like this, and and I guess the other the, the other soul searching and, and and tormenting I had with myself was was on Peter Murphy because Murph scored two iconic goals. He scored a lot, a lot of great goals and great moments, but you know there can't be many players who scored two separately but but hugely iconic goals in that period of time like Murph did at Stoke and then at. And then at Wembley, and you know, I, after a lot of soul searching, I went for Wembley because the story behind it was was I felt yeah, just just quite unique. And when speaking to Murph as well, he he said, "Look, that the feeling I had that day with that goal was like nothing I'd ever experienced." So I thought for him to say that, you know, in in light of him having scored one of the most important goals in the club's recent history at Stoke, was was quite telling too. But I'm very conscious that that's a favourite for a lot of people, and if it was a book of important goals. That would be that would be on the shortlist for sure. Absolutely, it's quite strange. I, I just say I I've read the whole book <laughs> just just to let you know. Next, I've made a joke in the past on Twitter about the fact that I never get around to reading your books, um, but I've I, I read it literally. I think a couple of weeks after I got it, I, I read it a little bit over one night and then 
the second night, I think I was reading it till about two in the morning because I just talked with the stories, stories I've not heard before. One thing that really strikes me about it is just how many of those players talk fondly about their time at the club, don't they? They, yeah, they seem yeah. to really have a close bond with the club, don't they? They do, they do. And I mean, I, I guess, you know, I was talking to these guys about, about individual great moments or great days or significant days. So I think a lot of the fondness comes through those memories anyway. But, but you, you're dead right. Um, that was the one thing that struck me, I think, more than more than any other theme, I think, that probably links most of these people, these 40 stories, these 40 personalities, was was a real deep fondness for, for the club, even from guys who maybe weren't there that long, you know, like, I mean, Magno Vieira, to, to, to pull one out at random, you know, he was, a, he was a young kid, he was on loan for not quite a full season, but the best part of one, never, never crossed paths with Carlisle again, but... Um, you know, you you could sense the warmth and the affection and the feeling and, and the regret that he never got the chance to, to to relive a little bit of that again in his career. And you know, I, I really I really enjoyed talking to David Reeves about not just the goal that sealed the title at Colchester in '95, but his his whole story at Carlisle United. And one of the first things he said when we started talking was that I really want to get across the, the the real appreciation I have for what the people of Carlisle and Cumbria, the supporters mm-hmm. who followed us in that iconic season, what what they did for me and my game and how they backed me and how they, they really sort of gave us this real rousing support. And it was it was quite emotional listening to, to some of that because, you know, we're, we're on the terraces or in the stands and we're, we're watching these guys and they become your heroes. It, it's... It's not as often you get to really get a feeling and a sense of what it means to these people too. And Carlisle stays with you, I think, as a player in quite a lot of cases. We've seen that over the years, you know, go back to Huey McElmoyle. He came back to Carlisle and he found he found real comfort and, and a sense of home in, in coming back here in his in his later years. And people like Les O'Neill have moved back. You see it quite a lot. It's maybe something more of, more of the past generations maybe of players, but... You still get it from people like Reevesy who, who moved on and went to Preston and he said, you know, I'm sure I didn't get the love from people when I went there, but still Carlisle that season was, was as good as anything I ever experienced and it was and it was special. So yeah, it was a real it was a real theme from, from beginning to end. It was, it was, it was lovely to hear really, because it's nice to know you you know, the support that you, you give to these guys as fans is is really felt. Yeah. Are there any particular stories that come out of those players that you enjoyed uh, listening to? I mean, I've picked out a few. I'd enjoyed the story about, uh, I think mean, it was Proud Lock and Gates, wasn't it? With the, uh, was it the Pigeons? I think it was. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, some of Mountfield's tales as well. And I think it was um, Hegsey with his fishing as well. I, I never knew all about that. Mm. He seemed to really like the area too. You need to, he's a player who's yeah. only there for one season. It's, it's incredible, isn't it? Well, it is. And, and talk about Carl Heggs in 2000, 2001. Not just there for one season, but was there for one of the most sort of unsettling and turbulent seasons in in the club's history. I mean, the place was an absolute nightmare, wasn't it? Then you'll remember as, as well as I do, as, as a supporter, what the worries and fears that you had as fans about what was going to become of the club. Then we had the Stephen Brown fiasco and the Mam Car, and the night and was really going into a dark place. And yet, and yet Carl Heggs, twenty years on, um, just looked back so fondly about Carlisle, the place, and what went on and that, that night at Lincoln when, you know, he scored that great volley and people were bursting onto the pitch and waving corner flags in the air and, you know, it was 
it's remarkable how things like that stay with players. There were some, there were some great stories I loved hearing. I mean, you mentioned Paul Proudlock. I mean, he had a lot of fondness for Eric Gates. Actually, you know, he, he did say that. I know he wasn't popular, and he had, there was this perception of the fact that he maybe didn't pull his weight in the way people felt he should with the money he was on. He quite liked him, but he did, he did tell a story about when they were training in the lakes and they were doing this cross country run and. Proud look said I, I was poor at long distances because my legs were so short, but but I was in front of one man and that was Eric Gates. So I thought, <laughs> well, I'm not going to come last here. But then, lo and behold, a minute later, Clive Middlemas pulls up in his car and, and Eric Gates is in the back seat. And Clive's saying, oh, he's too old for this. So, you know, little tales like that. Cause Proud Lock's a great character. I've never spoken to him before, but but he was an absolute treat to speak to. He was one of my first heroes, really, watching. Um, other other good little tales, you know, that come from them all, really. I mean, go back to Magno Vieira. Um, you know, I, I chuckled when he was describing, you know, when he was a young a young boy coming over from Brazil uh, with this agent who was trying to sort of put him into English football. And he he turned up at the airport with with, with the equivalent of £10 in his pocket to buy some, some vitamin, vitamin C, I think, or whatever it was, because he thought it was going to be so cold in England. There was no sun. <laughs> Um, so you know this kid leaves Brazil with ten pounds in his pocket, and then a few years later he's he's scoring one of the most bizarre goals for Carlisle that he ends up watching himself on a a TV show about you know remarkable football goals and they're just sort of things that you they're not everyday stories are they and that was quite a surreal one talking to Magno because my greenhouse was a bit of a sanctuary for me in the lockdown and in furlough it was. It was where I sat and sort of just talked to a lot of these players. And Magno's in New Zealand now, so I was sat in my greenhouse in the middle of the night, basically, <laughs> doing a WhatsApp call, talking to Magno about this this quite bizarre goal. And it was it was quite surreal, really. I thought I was just losing my mind a little bit at that point. But a great guy to speak to, as most of them were. Um, and I know another one you mentioned to me when when we spoke the other day was was Dave Symington when he spoke yeah. about. This. Quite astonishing free kick against Scunthorpe. I mean, one, surely one of the most remarkable free kicks Brunton Park has seen. And I was I was really interested talking to him about his, his route into the game as a young player, which wasn't the orthodox young lad who was obsessed with football and could yeah. name every player in the top flight. You know, he came into Carlisle and it, he freely said he was, you know, he, he was walking into the dressing room and all the other young players were, were sort of in awe of, of Ian Hart being there, as, as you could imagine, this this Champions League semi-finalist, this international star. And Dave Symington was turning to Brad Potts and saying, what is he meant to be good like? I've never, I've never, heard, of, I've never heard of him. But, he, you know, he, he, he was a young lad from West Cumbria who just liked playing football. I didn't watch football. I found it boring. I just wanted to go out and play. And there was a bit of that in how he played, I think, for Carlisle when, it, when he came through. And that was just that sense of this lad who would just he'd shoot from anywhere, uh, without any reservation and it was also interesting in how his life at the club kind of tailed off after that as well you get an insight into psychology and the, the mental yeah. side of the game and how you deal with that and that's all these stories flow from these these goals and these moments a little bit it was nice to sort of to, to unlock a little bit of that with some of them yeah i always feel with simon he's one of those lads who was maybe a little bit let down in the way he was treated at the club in the he was sort of shipped into a right-back position, wasn't he, for long periods? Which I know he has played for Workington as well, but I think he's played more on the wing for them uh, than as a defender. But I always felt that he's one of these players who clearly had ability. Just maybe there was just not the patience to mould him into a decent player. But it, it happens, doesn't it, I suppose, with players like him occasionally. just They just fade away from the the top of the game. Um, the other player I wanted to mention as well, I, I can't remember if I mentioned this one, I was emailing you, was the Francois Zoko one. 
I absolutely loved hearing about that one because I remember that goal myself because I was working at the club there in the media team. Mm. And I remember doing a... You knew what Francois was like back then. He claimed he couldn't speak very good English when <laughs> I think he could speak slightly better than you have made out to, uh, mm. to put it bluntly. But he's a lovely fellow. But I remember we did... Cause it was, was it a snowy night that night? Or I imagine right, that in my head? I, I don't know if it was snowy, but it was, it was, it was freezing. Well, it was what it yeah. was... Time of year, wasn't it? It was quite a sort of a, a misty sort of night, but it was, yeah. it was thick, yes, as he always would be. I just remember as well after the, he, he was just so cold when he was the post match, and he he he, did, he would rather have been anywhere else. I think that night. Um, but yeah, the, the story about his mini, it's, it's just it's beautiful, isn't it? Because then oh. when he came in, he and he was talking to uh, Tony Bingley about the fact that he was desperate to get this mini, and I don't think Tony could understand. You could have any car you want. No, no, I want mini. I want a mini. He was obsessed with getting a mini, so uh, yeah, it was like it was, it was, flying around Carlo. Well, uh, yeah, I remember that. It was it was quite a distinctive sight, Zoko coming into the car park and his and his mini Cooper. But as he as he explained and you know he told the 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 London branch audience the other night when we did the the launch with them why exactly that was because he'd I think he'd started off with a Range Rover. I mm. think it 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 driven it with, with whoever it was in the passenger seat who who said, "Look, have you ever have you ever had driving last?" Francois, you seem to be having having a bit of a problem keeping this on the road, and I think he he just sort of threw his hands up and said, "You know what? I need a smaller car. That I can I can keep in the lanes here." So yeah, all part of the magic of Francois. But I mean, God, what a great goal that was! It was only it was only Francois on the pitch that night that was going to produce that, and it was just absolutely beautiful, beautifully executed overhead kick. He made it look easy, didn't he? But goodness me, what a what a moment! And it was lovely to hear as well from him explaining why he actually came to the club too, because obviously he had that chance to go to, I think was it Charlton, I think it was mm. the club it was after him. And he just thought, no, I want to be somewhere that's a bit smaller and a bit more quieter. And yeah. you don't yeah. always get that, do you? Because you know, find a lot of players from abroad do tend to want to go to London because that's where quite often there's a lot of French or Spanish or whatever people live in. So yeah, it was just nice to, to hear from him. I think from the, the more recent ones, I did enjoy hearing um, about Danny Granger's goal. Um mm-hmm. I was, a bit, I was a little bit surprised you didn't pick the Portsmouth one, though. And I thought that might have been in my mind, because considering it was of his weaker foot as well. Yeah, so yeah. Amazing that, that, that one. That was another one of those dilemmas. I mean, I remember chatting to Danny and said, look, there's, there's one or two, you know, you don't get many, you didn't get many tap-ins, Danny. Which which one are we going to choose here? And I, I went for Newport and, yeah, you know, you, 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 could, you could easily pick Portsmouth. But, but when he started talking about Newport and the fact it was a last-minute winner as opposed to an equaliser, maybe carries it a little bit um the fact that you know when he talked about how special it was when he did his big knee slide in front of the the pioneer stand and he saw his, his he saw his young son he could just caught his eye straight away his young lad was was just going daft in the stand doing this big sort of big dance and jig and it, it was quite special really that and when danny talked about when he used to be that fan that young supporter stood in the warwick at you know watching jimmy glass and things like that I just like the symmetry between the, the, the sort of the last minute winner and in, in a way that come towards the end of of Danny's time at Carlisle and he'd been on this sort of journey at the club which which didn't start particularly well in that first season when he came in under under Kavanagh and got quite a lot of stick and, and was part of that struggle and as the local player bought, bought some of the brunt of that too but he really showed showed character and metal and, and the, the sort yeah. of the essence of Danny as we came to know him how we, how we fought through that and I just thought a, a last minute winner at, at, you know, at the ground where you used to come as a boy, with your little lad in the stand going nuts like you used to do yourself, I just thought that was just a nice package that I'd summed up where Danny had, had got to with the club. But yeah, Portsmouth was, was a ridiculous goal as well, wasn't it? Yeah, and the other thing that sort of stands out for me in some of these stories about the goals is the fragility of some of these players. 
you, you think of them as these heroes, don't you? These big, strong athletes on the pitch. But then you hear actually mentally, some of them find it tough. I mean, mm. Warren Aspinall's an obvious one, brilliant player on the pitch, but off the field, clearly had his demons, didn't he? And that comes across in his tales. And I mean, even Chris Billy's quite self-deprecating, isn't he? Of his abilities as a footballer, but he was a brilliant player for us. And you mm. sometimes wonder, when you when you see fans giving players his stick, it almost makes you think, Maybe you shouldn't, you know, ease off a little bit on them sometimes. Yeah, there's always a there's always a person and there's always a story and a, and a mindset behind behind all of these guys. And you know, it, it, that was one of the the many fascinating parts of being able to do this was, was hearing some of those those aspects. I mean, you you know, Jeff thought well as a, as a cockermouth, but yeah. I, I've spoken to Jeff before about life after football, so you know, I, I had a sense of where you know where the, his stories might go. But we talked about his. His, his incredible day at Scunthorpe, that brilliant two goals and that iconic season in the deck chair. And and yet his perspective on football it had gone through so many different phases through the career that was that was so unfortunately hindered by the injuries that he had and how that affected his, his outlook and his, and his mentality on the game. And then when he came out of football and was looking upon the game in a much different and probably darker light and quite a frustrated light, I think. And then how he... How he kind of went off and did other things and learned a lot about about himself and about about life and went into academia and how he kind of rebuilt a different sort of perspective on the game. Now I thought it was it was absolutely fascinating to talk to to Jeff, a really sort of bright and thoughtful guy about about how 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 just how a football life can can go in so many different ways just based on the misfortune of an injury perhaps or just how. What happens when you come out of it, and, and how you come out of it? So th- that was one. You know, we mentioned Dave Symington. He talked about how he really felt like he was just going into a brick wall at that time when he couldn't force his way back in under under Curl. And uh, Mally Poskett was another one who I thought was really was really honest. I'd never mm-hmm. spoken to Mally before. I found him so disarmingly um, honest and, and and sincere about how he found life after football and not being able to recreate that buzz of scoring goals, which is what he was all about. And how it really affected him and his life, and then how he how he struggled and found it found it quite hard, and, and still has a has a perspective on it now that I think is vastly different to the, those glory days. He said, "I I can't really watch football at Brunton Park now because you just want to be out there playing, and, and you can't." And I find myself just kicking the seat in front of me in frustrations. It's you know these are the insights I was really pleased I was able to get because you know it's it's about so much more than scoring a goal and talking about what a great goal you scored you you want to know a bit about the person behind it so they all had something different to tell and that was the that's the beauty of it I suppose really making it all about the stories and the the people as much as the the player if you like yeah I'm going to be a little self-indulgent here I'm going to tell you my favorite story about Jeff Thorpe well because it's a weird one because it's basically about uh when my uncle used to take me to go and watch Carl again my uncle he sadly passed away 10 years ago this weekend, actually. So my Uncle James used to take me and my brothers to go and watch Carlisle. In the 94-95 season, you know, when things were really picking up and we were doing really well. And he'd take us to the Tuesday night games, I think, because my dad wasn't able to, to do it, probably to do with work, something like that. So we went through one week to a game. And it was a game, um, I can't remember what it was. It might have been one of the uh, auto-windscreens games, but it was a midweek game anyway. And we won it. But on the way back, where we, when we got to Cockermouth, uh, we stopped off to get some chips uh, for taking... Doesn't sound like you, Lee, then. No, no, not not, not at all. <laughs> um, anyway, so pop into this chippy and we're there and I've got my Carlisle scarf on, my uncle's there and the, there's a fellow stood there also getting his chips and he turns to my uncle and goes, oh, you've been to the game tonight? And uh, my uncle's like, oh, yeah, just been to the game. 
cra- cracking result again. Yeah, another great result. Or I tell you what, yeah, I mean, that, that Jeff Thorpe had a cracking game. Like, but oh, there was one point he was through in on goal. He was playing through a through ball, and he was he could have easily scored, but he turned back and passed the ball back to someone. And oh, he really should have took the chance. It would have made it even more comfortable. Aye, aye. And the monker goes, "Did you go to the game as well?" And the guy goes, "Aye, I did. I'm Jeff Thorpe." <laughs> <laughs> never, never, you just uncle, didn't recognise him. How on earth? I don't know. My, my uncle normally, you know, could talk for, could have talked for England. Absolutely lost for words at that point. But bless him, Jeff said, oh, "Don't worry about. It. You're absolutely right. I should I should have gone through and scored there, shouldn't I?" But, uh, but yeah, it always amuses me that story. But um, but yeah, so I think we sort of covered sort of the main parts of the the book age on. So I've got a couple of questions here for you. Um, I've given you these in advance so you can have a think about them. So firstly, what are the three best goals you've seen for United? So that's the three best yeah. in terms of quality. Best in terms of quality. That's that, I mean, these are so hard to narrow it down. Um, I suppose, you know, ones I've seen, I'll, I'll, I'll go with my, my supporting and reporting period then because, you know, it wouldn't be fair for me to say yeah. he was back against Gator because I, yeah. I never saw it. But um, in terms of... Um, Remarkable! How on earth did he do that? Unique quality. I have to think of Pericard against Norwich, yeah. because I still can't figure out. I watched that hundreds of times. I still can't quite figure out how he's done that. Because not just the the technique of reaching behind himself in this sort of scorpion style, whatever he did, but how he got such power in the shot. You know, he sent it rocketing past past Fraser Forster didn't he, that night in the mist and. I just I can't I find it unfathomable. You know, you couldn't try that in your garden at home. I don't think and pull it off without. Do you think, do you think the mist adds to years it? Of practice. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was it was so atmospheric. Um, it, it, the photographs that, that Stuart Walker took for, for the News and Star that night. It was just it's so atmospheric and so almost eerie. This this it was quite heavy mist, wasn't it at the time? Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, and it was this early evening kickoff because it was being live streamed or something, and then out of the mist comes this. This this incredible goal um, that I think people talk about forever as Carlisle supporters who who were there or who saw that. So um, yeah, not not orthodox technique. You know, we talk about Zoko's overhead kick as, as really spectacular, but phenomenal technique. Pericard was something that you, you don't see. You maybe see once every decade or something. So that was that was pretty special. Um, I, I want to say Michael Bridges against Chester too. Now, now Bridges again was a guy that didn't do tap-ins. You know, I could have included his goal at Northampton. You know, his, his, his lob I think against Grimsby, great goal he scored against Lincoln on a bog of a pitch. But the Chester goal was his favourite, and it was mine as well. And I think it's partly because I remember what that pitch was like back then. Um, it was. It was just before. It was just before David Mitchell really was yes got got on the case of that, and it was it was redone that summer in in '06 under Fred Story etc. And it become a bit of a carpet after that, and since then David Mitchell's just turned into one of the best pitches well, around. But then so that is that is the last time we had a game called off for a waterlogged pitch bar the floods. Well, was that season incredible? Amazing, that. amazing. Um, which is just testament to to what what's been done there, and and the guy they've got looking after it who's. It was one of the club's greatest assets, I think, and always will be as long as he's there. But but that pitch, going back to Bridges, um, knowing what that pitch was like, and I think that was in February against Chester, um, he glided across that pitch as though it was it was an ice rink. He was doing step overs. He was sending one Chester player one way down the M6, another one the other way, and <laughs> it, it was just it, it was so superior quality that he was showing in that the balance, the poise, that you know I. I 
can't really fathom how a player is able to dribble with that sort of elegance on a pitch that was clearly quite quite rutted and uneven and bobbly. I remember going on that pitch after the Stockport game when they came back and did the presentation. It was the first time I really got close to the pitch and realised how, how sort of heavy and bobbly it was. And there's bridges that are gliding down it, going past two or three, dropping the shoulder and pinging it in the bottom corner. And it was just... What is this guy doing here at this level of football? You know, but you know, you know, he obviously came for for good reasons for his own for his for his own sake and his own game, and he was really embraced and he embraced Carlisle. But that was that was something on a on another level of quality that you normally saw in in League Two football. I think um, there are so many others. If you want me to do a, a, a top three, I mean, I mean, Zoko comes to mind. Um, you know. I, Thinking of thinking of some, I'm thinking of you know Simon Hackney screaming one through a, a crowd of players against Leeds, but I, I, I'm going to say Hallam Hope because that goal against Notts County was was one of those moments where you know as a reporter you don't tend to, you, you try and stop yourself getting too sort of emotionally embroiled in in goals even when it's your team that's scoring them, but that was just one of those moments where I just couldn't help standing up and just almost involuntarily applauding because you could see what he was up to. I know a lot of people on the Notts County side certainly didn't, least of all the goalkeeper. And it was it was the fact that he, he had the, the thought and the foresight and the nerve to try and pull that off and then did it. Again, it was one of those goals you might see once every 10 or 15 years. It went absolutely viral, maybe more than any other Carlisle goal, I'm not sure. Um, and I just wanted to applaud the ingenuity of that. And it was a horrible night against County. It was a storm raging. The performance was poor. The team was 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 coming down the wrong side of that that promotion push under Presley after losing the lone players, etc. And yet, even on a grim night like that, you see this little bit of little bit of magic. Uh, something that you know takes a bit of takes a bit of nerve and imagination and ingenuity to do. And you know it was a horrible three one defeat and. And it counted for more or less nothing, but I just wanted to applaud that, and that's that's what you don't see all the time. So I'll, I'll go with that one if if we're going for a top three. But ask me again tomorrow, I'll probably pick a different <laughs> three. That's that's how it goes, isn't yeah. it? Well, off the top of my head, my three best goals, I think, not necessarily my favourites. I'd probably say Granger's goal against Portsmouth that we mentioned earlier, just for the mm. fact that he was with his swinger and it was just ridiculous. Lee Madison. The one goal he scored yeah. for us against Lane Orton, and I remember because I was stood in the paddock and I was right behind them when he hit it. Mm. I've never seen a ball move like that into the top corner. Incredible goal! Yeah, that was that was that was on my shortlist. That was that was close to, to to making it in, but maybe in the next one. And yeah, fantastic yeah. goal! Oh, incredible! And then I struggled to pick between these two. One of them came up to my head the other day, and I'd forgotten about this goal for years. The part of me is thinking I've imagined it because I can't find any footage of it. Stuart Green, I'm sure, scored a goal against Torquay, again, on a pudding of a pitch, mm. where I think he went through on goal, beat your defender, rounded the keep and put it into the empty net. And we talk about how bad the pitch was when Bridges was playing that day, but I'm sure this night the game was barely played. I think it was just about <laughs> going to be called off, but they went ahead of it. Mm. It's either that or it's got to be Doby's goal against Chester, again, yeah. just for the ridiculousness oh, of it. The, the emotion that that unleashed and... and... Scott talked about that himself. Uh, people bursting from behind that goal. It was a huge following there at Chester. It was it was one of those periods where you know Carlisle were in crisis, weren't they? For a period of seasons, it was it was relegation battle after relegation battle, and it was it was also the club's very future, I think, on the line as well, and and how things were were starting to go under Knighton. And 
you know, it was it was just one of those moments that you know, down to nine men, terrible game. I, I don't think they had a shot on target. I don't think no. they had ninety odd minutes, and Dolby lashes one in. It's just I remember listening to that. I wasn't there at that game, but I remember listening to it to Derek Lacey on the radio, and it was just that thought of how on earth do we keep doing this? How do we keep pulling these ridiculous moments out of the bag when when all seems lost? Um, just incredible. We, we go back to puddings of pitches briefly as well. Hmm. Um, I'm thinking back to the, to the mid '90s when when Wadsworth's team were on the march and that auto windscreens running. Well, probably you know the both runs that they had, you know, 94 and then 95, but that Rochdale game, the first leg of that... that you can say David Curry. David Curry swinging one in that wind-assisted beauty, yeah. but, but also the pitch, if you look at the pitch and the weather, yeah. it's terrible, and yet Rod Thomas was step over, doing step-overs and jinking into the box. Curry was, was working his magic, and, you know, could you imagine that that quality of surface now at this level of football? You can't, it just shows the progress, yeah. doesn't it? But, but, but what good stuff Carlisle played then, it just shows the quality of those guys, doesn't it? Yeah. Newport accepted in terms of uh, pitches of that quality. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. But, yeah, I, the next one I had for you, it's whether they're different to the three best ones. Your three favourite goals, would you say, that from the last 30 years? Yeah, I think I think it is a different question because I think they can be goals that that, that stay with you for diff- all sorts of different reasons. So I, I jotted about half a dozen down. I was having a battle getting it down to three. But I, I think up there with, with probably my favourite, goal I've ever seen at Carlisle was Joe Joyce against Huddersfield in, in 94 um, and I think that just takes me back to to that place on the paddock where the ground's you know not full but there's 8,000 in there and it's it's a point when Carlisle are on the rise it's a point where I was at an age I was 13 I think then when you're really starting to I, I guess get that connection maybe more with your club than when you were a bit younger and smaller you're understanding a little bit more about the game and all these things were coming together and then Carlisle were coming back from the dead in this tie, had scored a goal and then little more than a minute later, the right back who isn't isn't known too often for crossing the halfway line pops up and not just scores but hits the sweetest goal you'll ever see, it rocketed into the net and I just remember what that felt like in that crowd that night. It was just one of those moments where you just... You lose your mind and your senses a little bit. The place went nuts. People were hugging each other, going absolutely ballistic, and that that's still quite a vivid feeling and memory for me. So, and I think a lot of other people I, I sort of treasure that moment too. And it it had that element of just being a sort of agonising failure that night, didn't it too? Because yeah. when Joyce stuck that one in, you think, well, this is on. This comeback is on. We're, we're going to get to Wembley here, and then it was just that that agony of not quite being able to follow it up in the second half, etc. So that was. That was always a real favourite. Um, another goal that meant a lot to me was, was Murphy at Wembley. That winner, um, that was that was from a, from a professional point of view, being able to to sit in the press box at Wembley and and report on my team winning a cup final was a real privilege and and sort of a an ambition as long as I've, I've been in this this sort of job to do that. And it had the added factor of the fact that it was. Such a great servant and great player and great great person scoring. It was such a good goal. The technique to do what he did and, and everything around that weekend of Murph becoming a dad, putting to rest the demons of the year before with handball and everything. Everything Murph had, had been through on that journey at Carlisle. Um, that was that's something I'll always really treasure that I was able to, to sit there and, and, and write about that and report on it and, and, and be there and witness it. So that'll always be a favourite. 
Um, and trying to pick a third is, is, is really hard. Um, one of my favourites, and it might not be in many other people's top threes or fives, was was Paul Murray against Doncaster um, at the start of the 06-07 season. Now, again, wasn't a spectacular goal. In the end, it didn't count for, for a huge amount team-wise in the long run. But I'd got to know Paul Murray over the preceding months, just through through the job when he'd come back to Carlisle to, to, to get fit again. And then he signed and then he had the, the big sort of red tape issue in getting him, you know his eligibility to play for mm. Paul Murray. I'd, I'd become quite close to, to, to Muzzer in that respect as a reporter. But I was still a fan. I was still much more of a fan than a reporter. I'd been doing the job for a few months. <laughs> Muzzer was one of the young players in the 90s who I, I absolutely loved to watch. I thought it was absolutely fantastic the way he played, the way he went about it. Real shame what injuries stopped him going on to achieve, I think. And then he, he you know, that, that injury he had when he came back in 06 was, was, was career-threatening. He was very close to finishing him. Um, so I'd heard all of this from him. It, it'd spoken about all of this. I was a little bit awestruck, to be honest, when I was interviewing him at this time. And then when he stuck that goal in, which turned out to be the only goal he ever scored at Brunton Park, um, I just got so caught up in the, the feeling of that and the emotion of that. I was, I was stood on my feet in the press box just cheering and howling. It was utterly embarrassing, making a complete show of myself, I think. <laughs> but, but again, it's that... It's that memory of how these things make you feel which I think is what these all these goals and all these memories are all about it's, it's not just about what they maybe count count for football wise it's, it's the emotions that they that they that they put into you and that, that's that's how you remember them and that's why they stick with you you know I've got a few more on my list here Simon Hackney against Leeds the noise when that went in right at oh, Brunton yeah. Park that 3-1 I think that's the loudest I've ever heard Brunton Park in, in all my time going there it was a full house and Putting leads to the saw, it doesn't get much better than that, does it? So yeah, loads of other favourites, but you know things like that stick out. Carl Hawley at Mansfield, that capping that season, and that goal scoring season he had. That was my first season as a reporter as well. Um, just magical stuff. So everyone has the favourites. That's the that's the joy of it, isn't it? For different reasons. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, some really good ones in there, John. Actually, then some you know you might some might have forgotten about. I mean. I remember that Murray goal as well. I remember the fact that I think that's one of our biggest opening day crowds at home ever, isn't it? That game against uh, Doncaster, and people forget that. I think there was something like eleven thousand there that day. Maybe I think it was. Yeah, it was. It was. Exactly. You had fans behind the, the waterworks as well. Mm. The fans as well, didn't you? Which always yeah. makes it always makes it a better a better sense of occasion when there's a decent crowd in there. And you know, we'd come up two divisions. We were really on the march, weren't we? I know Simo had gone by then, but there was a sense of the club going places. And okay. this local hero had been through the mill and had come back scoring. It was it was a bit of romance in that, I think, as well. Yeah. And that was really chuffed for Muzzer. And he, he treasures that as well. And it was nice speaking to him about it. Yeah. But, but yeah, it was good senses of occasion at Brunton Park. It's yeah. amazing how many... How many memorable moments really come from from those days? You, you, you don't forget them in a hurry, do you? Well, I'm going to pick my three favourites now, right? I've just thought these off the top of my head because I'd forgotten to write them down earlier. So the first, two of them you probably expect. One of them, the middle one, you might be a bit surprised by. But anyway, Paul Conway v Berry in that game on uh, not on Boxing Day. So I always say this, but on the 27th, it still amazes <clears> me that we played on Boxing Day, won five nil, and then played the day after and won three nil against. You know, second place, Berry, blows my mind. That you think these days players, well, clubs complain about too many games and stuff, don't they? And they played two in the space of twenty four hours. But that Conway goal, you'd maybe pick the the Curry goal in that game. I know you've had that as your um, 
Uh, Bad at having you on Twitter a few times yeah, in the past. Yeah. But um, the Conway goal sticks out for me because this this is the first ever game I went to, Carlisle game. Right, well. Of all the first games to go one, to, I know. I've been cursed for life ever since. It's uh, <laughs> brilliant, isn't it? But um, the Curry goal was at the far end and I was in the paddock near where the, you know, the gates are at the top end. Mm. We were sat on the wall at the front, so I couldn't really see the Curry goal as clearly. I was only, I would have been, what, 10, 10 years old? No, maybe nine years old, actually, then. Just coming up to 10. But the Conway goal was scored at the at the end we were sat at. Mm. And I just remember the noise when that goal went in. Mm. And the feeling of, wow, this is what it's like to go to an actual football game. And like I said, it got me hooked for life, and that's why it's a special goal for me. The second one is Richie Foran's equaliser against Halifax in oh, yeah, uh, Roddy yeah. Collins' first season in charge. Because it, it's kind of a weird one because it, it kept us in the league, but it kept us in the league without seven games to go. So it doesn't really matter that much. Everyone forgets the fact that it wasn't like it was with a couple of games to go. There was about seven or eight games still to go at that point. But it was amazing that Collins had turned around what looked an absolute mess at Christmas mm-hmm. and went on this brilliant run of form that people do tend to forget about. But that game, that I remember. Some, yeah, that, that was that was real success in that period, wasn't yeah. it? Finished about seventeenth and, and staying up with with time to spare. It was almost unheard of in that four or five year period, wasn't it? And I just remember that night as well. That was the night when it, it'd been a few weeks, I think, or a month or two after John Courtney started to show his interest in buying the club, hadn't he? Um, mm. God rest his soul. And I remember, I think he was doing co-coms with Derek that night, wasn't he? <laughs> Which is <laughs> that was still lively then. Exactly, exactly that. But. Obviously, I think they, they got a, I think a goal quite late on to make it 2-1. And then I think in about the fourth minute in due time, Richie scored. It was almost a slide tackle into the bottom corner, into the goal behind which we were all stood in the big open banks of terracing at uh, the Shea. And there must have been about 1,500 Carlisle fans. And I had two of my mates there who aren't particularly big Carlisle fans. And they said they've never seen anything like it because as soon as the goal went in, there was a guy stood at the front trying to stop people going through this gate this one steward trying to stop him over this gate. And the next thing you knew, uh, Tony Hopper pushed past him to go into the stand. And the guy was like, <laughs> yeah, well, why, why am I? I'm not getting paid enough to stop this. So basically the pitch was engulfed with fans by that point. And then I remember at the end that when the players came over to celebrate, and there was another mini pitch invasion. John Courtney was down there celebrating. And, was, and the excitement of thinking, maybe finally something's going to happen. And obviously it did in the end, but it didn't happen straight away, did it? There was a... Still a few months of a turmoil after that as well. So yeah, I just yeah. remember that goal that night and just the feeling when that goal went in. Mm. Just unbelievable. I mean, I could have picked any of the other goals from in similar sort of circumstances, but that one's always a little bit different. And I always remember that because I would have been around about 17 then. Although not legally, I was able to go into drink, the pubs and have a drink. So it felt a bit different going to the football then by that point. Um, and the third one's one, that's one, of, one of the ones in your book. Uh, it's Lee Miller's goal against Huddersfield. Oh, yeah. And again, yeah. you mentioned they're losing it a bit when Paul Murray scored his goal against uh, Doncaster. But I remember just losing my head when this goal went, <laughs> went in. And bear in mind, I wasn't working in the media team, not even in the, in the press <laughs> at that point. And Because there was a guy from The Guardian there, wasn't there, doing like almost like a sort of colour sort of yeah. article piece in it. And I remember him just being blown away at how good a football we were playing at that point. Oh, against a Huddersfield team. Them. Against a Huddersfield team that cost so much more to put together than ours did. Mm-hmm. And... That goal, again, it's not a great goal. It's one of the scruffiest goals you'd imagine. I mean, Daddy Livesey might disagree with me with his brilliant uh, <laughs> ball, but um, it was just the feeling and that the place erupted. It wasn't, you know, it was about a crowd of about 8,000, I think, that day. Yeah. But, but it felt it felt yeah. bigger and it just felt like this team is going to go on to the playoffs at the very least here. And then, yeah. 
as Lee mentioned, sadly got the injury. He never really mm. regained the same form, did he? After that, I don't think. No, he didn't. Strong. I mean, I think the following season when he when he came back, he did he did he did chip in a reasonable amount of goals, but the team was obviously in decline then, and it was it was it was only heading one way, and his his Carlisle career was was never quite the same, and it, it sort of quite sadly faded out after that. But that that day against Huddersfield. And I, I, I've written this in the book, and it was, as I know, a number of other fans have, have said this too. It was really, I mean, we're going back eight years now, which is frightening, but was that the last time that Brunton Park really felt like it did that day? The place was shaking when that goal went in, and people were just going absolutely nuts. Um, people were tumbling down the Warwick Road, and some people were falling over. It was just, it was just that, again, that moment where you, you, you lose your senses a little bit. Um, and as the place felt quite like that ever since, I don't know. I can only think of maybe two games or two goals moments that get close to that and would be, I think, was it, well, we beat, I think it was Exeter 3-2. I think White scored a last minute winner yeah, in that game. Yeah. I remember it going quite mad then when we were sort of pushing for promotion under Curl. But also when Miller scored his goal, Sean Miller, that is, had that mm. many of them, haven't we? Against Exeter, that header, yeah. I think, the only other time. But I'd grieve you. I don't think they ever felt quite like that Miller goal because we really were flying at that point. Whereas when Miller scored his goal against Exeter, we had a bit of sort of barren run, hadn't we? Prior, yeah. I think. And uh, the Exeter one, we, there still was that feeling of distrust, I mean, maybe, I think, towards the board and that kind of thing. So, so yeah, that, that Miller goal, and like I said, Lee never really hit the heights quite the same after that did he and I think he probably wasn't helped as well people forget he got a bad ankle injury as well the start mm, of the next yeah. season didn't yeah, he? he did yeah a horrendous yeah. tackle on him Steve he wasn't punished yeah. yeah so it's one of those ones a little bit of regret there maybe we never quite saw all of the best of Lee Miller but for the you know eight or nine months we had him at his best he was incredible oh, wasn't he, he was, I mean it was the it was the absolute key to that team yeah. turning from a team that had that certainly had bits of bits of promise and had yeah. some you know some some it had a bit of a blend actually, but he brought the whole thing together, didn't he? And, and when when Abbott found that blend of yeah. of Loy and McGovern, and then Zoko came in after Loy's injury, um, it, it seemed to have all the pieces were there. And, and Lee says himself, I just thought we had the we had the package there. And when Jordan Cook came in, didn't he too? In that period, and he got a couple of goals, and it just seemed like just seemed like it was happening. But then, in 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 classic Carlisle fashion, something comes out of nowhere and sabotages it, and it's just never quite as simple as you you want it to be. But that season, yeah, from his debut actually Orient onwards until the moment he limped off against Scunthorpe, um, so influential, and uh, I don't think people should underestimate just how good he was in that period. Absolutely, absolutely. It's a couple of quick more questions for you, John. I'll let you get on with the rest of your day and prepare for the uh, big game at Grimsby tomorrow. Um, so. This is, I think you've sort of briefly covered this, but what inspired your decision to support the NHS through the sales of the book? Well, well, that was that was quite an easy decision to to do that because it was, as I said, the idea came from the lockdown when COVID was 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 at its climbing to that horrible peak in the March April period, um, and I, I just thought, in all good conscience, could I have done anything other than give the small amount of money that this idea in this book might potentially raise you know could i give it anywhere other than the local nhs in cumbria that were going above and beyond and still are doing to 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 help people to save people's lives to make people's lives lies easier in this utterly bizarre and 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 weird and extremely serious and troubling year that 
that we're all all having. So I just thought it was the right thing to do and the, and the proper thing to do. And you know, I just hope that, that it encourages people to, you know, if if, if they haven't any other reason to, to to buy the book, that might be one that that, that they say, well, it's it's a little contribution from each copy goes there. So I just felt it was it was right. You know, I mean, most of us. Most of us use the NHS at some point in our lives, don't we? And I have, my family has in the, in the fairly recent past, and you know I, th I think a bit of appreciation to them. I know, I know a lot of people say the NHS isn't a charity and we shouldn't treat it as such, and I completely agree with that. But I still think that shouldn't stop us wanting to to to, to give it a little help if we want to and if we feel like it's right. So it was as simple as that, mate. Really, and I, I'm glad that that's where it's going. Excellent. Um... So another brief one. I didn't actually send this one to you before, but it's just something that's come into my head. Sort of, what's it been like over the last few months, in particular, reporting on the club during these really strange times and going to these games where there's no fans? Must, that that South End game must look like such an ano anomaly now, really, yeah. in the grand scheme of things. It was so refreshing that South End game. Honestly, um, mm. I mean, look, m myself, the other reporters, Radio Cumbria, club media people, we're, we're the lucky ones. And we shouldn't forget that we're allowed to go to these games. It's very well controlled and organised in how, how we're able to go and, and do our jobs and, and cover these games and report on them for people. Um, but it really isn't the same. Um, so Southend in with a thousand people there, it, it, it felt it felt more normal. It felt like a football game should. There, there yeah. was some atmosphere. There were some of the usual noises and, and cheers and groans and everything that gives a football game its life at this level. Um, Covering the others, um, yes, you do get absorbed into the game as as you always would, but you're always conscious that it's a bit strange and it's not quite right, and and you're not getting that that interaction from supporters that that makes a game what it is. And um, I I just felt at Port Vale the other week when when we had that three or four minute spell that that was so decisive when. Had the penalty, had the penalty save, had Mellish lunging in to make that incredible challenge. Two or three minutes later, he's up the other end of the pitch, popping one in, in front of what would have been a pretty busy away end, I think. And it just made me think just how much the Carlisle's faithful that travel up and down the land would have loved that moment, that, that, that few minutes. They would have been absolutely bouncing and jubilant. And until we get that back, it's not going to be the same. And it's it doesn't change how you how you do the, the nuts and bolts of the reporting job but i think it does change how you how you see the game and how you and i think it should change how you report the game because such a big element of football isn't there and what, what the crowd does and how players maybe interact with the crowd what the paddock is saying all these things when not people gathering outside the ground every part of that that whole um, sort of life force of a football game isn't there and I think it, it would be wrong not to acknowledge that and to really miss it because you feel like you're reporting on a reserve game in a lot of ways when there's, when there's nobody there and you hear all the shouts that's quite interesting hearing you can hear what Beach is shouting you know, you can hear Paul Farman um, in another county I think cause he's got, <laughs> yeah, he's got, he's got the loudest voice going but it, it's interesting to hear some of that that you don't normally pick up on but it's, you know, you'd happily lose that in the click of a finger to get supporters back. I really hope it can, I really hope it can happen soon because the game, the game won't be the same until it is and the game will struggle until, until that happens as well. Yeah, you'd much rather have it here in someone's house, for God's sake, Anderson, short it, sort it out rather than a farm and bellowing out instructions, wouldn't you? 
Yeah, you would. You would. You just, you just want to hear. Well, you want to hear the paddock giving absolute hell to, <laughs> to opponents and managers and referees and stuff. That that's when we'll know we're we're over the worst of this when the paddock is back in full in full cry and and causing misery to people. So that, that's the it. thing I miss the most, definitely. Oh yeah, I mean, it's the one thing I've missed ever since the press box moved from that side of the ground to the to the pioneer stand. In every other way. It's 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 far superior now because the facilities are great. The club have done a great job in how they've they've kitted that out. It's it's perfect, but you just don't <laughs> you don't get the paddock down in front of you or the, the people in that main stand. You know, saying what they say to the directors and that those interactions too. But you can still pick up on it from a distance, and it's it's what makes Brunton Park what it is when it's you know when it's got a decent number of people in and there's a, there's a good game going on. There's a bit of edge. You know, there's been a bit of controversy, and that's when. That's when it can come into its own. We can all remember games when it's when it's been like that more than others. And yeah, yeah fingers crossed it can it can happen again soon and, and the place will be a bit as it as it should be again. Finally, John, what's the next book gonna be then? Well, yeah, good question. <laughs> I mean, we've talked about all the ones I've left out of this book. Um so I might have to do a number two you know, a number two a sequel of of bolts from the blues, I, I, I could easily, I could easily draw a list of two or three more. So, uh, in all seriousness, that that would be a possibility, maybe um, if time allows. I mean, I, I was, I was lucky in a way that I had all the, yeah. the time to be able to do this and not fit it around the day job, which which does make it more challenging. So maybe one day I look to do that. I've got some other ideas of of maybe bits of ghost writing or some other other themes, but. I think after you've done a book, you pour so much of your your life and soul into it. You do need a break from it because it takes over your takes over your mind and it it, it takes over your life. You know, you need to give give a bit of that time to to your family and stuff as well. So yeah, I, I hope I hope and think it won't be the last book I'll do. Um, see what the next two or three years bring, maybe. Um, and it, you know, I'm always up for up for ideas and thoughts. It's just sometimes the challenge is 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 physically putting them into practice, but. It's, you know, we'll, we'll see. We'll, watch this space. It'd be nice to do something else in, in the not too distant. Well, thanks, John, for your time. Um, anyone out there who's interested in the book, uh, they can get it from the Blue Store. I think quite a few shops in Carlisle as well are selling it. Yeah, it's, yeah, the Blue Store have been great. They've really got, got behind it, the club, and there's the signed copies in there. It's uh, it's in Bookends in Carlisle. It's in HMV. Waterstones have got a big batch in there now. And, you know, most of these places they'll, they'll do online orders as well that the publishers vertical editions um it can be ordered directly from their website amazon you 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 name it so all, all these places and if anyone if anyone's ever having any difficulty getting hold of one they can they can get in touch with me on twitter or, or via the paper and, and we can we can help there so hopefully hopefully people who, who want it can get their hands on it and and enjoy it and, and know that it's going to a, going to a good little cause as well i presume it's discounted if you've signed it then <laughs> yeah the unsigned ones uh, definitely got more resale value definitely yeah you won't you, you won't maybe won't see those on ebay but the signed ones <laughs> excellent john thank you so much for your time really do appreciate it i would 100 percent recommend the book to anyone it's a perfect christmas present i'll be buying one for all my family john hopefully we'll catch up with you again soon uh, to discuss all things kai united and hopefully Talking about a promotion push because it looks like it's on, doesn't it? Oh, steady on, steady on. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, well, look, you know, I think after after them first two or three games, we'd all have taken sitting fifth as we are as we're speaking after seven games with you know with three wins out of four and playing some decent stuff in the last few weeks. Really, you know, you can see the effects of what Beach is trying to get out of the team, and you know, I hope it hope it can be sustained. I hope you know injuries allow and get some of those injured players back and. You know, you see, you see a bit of evidence of things knitting together, and it would be great, wouldn't it, to have a season where 
there's the prospect of that. Although you know, I know it's this is going to be a season like no other. In a way, you're just glad that we're able to watch the team. Yeah. Um, I know it's I know it's eye follow for most people, but just that it's happening at all. But wouldn't it be great if this this new rebuilt team with all the the big changes can can become a bit of a unit that that, that, that cracks on and, and generates a bit of positivity, and that's what we can report and and, and enjoy somehow. So, yeah, it is early days. I wouldn't like to throw my hat on a, on a promotion challenge at the moment, but some good signs we've seen, you know, that there's definitely, there's definitely evidence of some good, some good progress. And I think that there's a squad of good characters too. That's what I've noticed. Oh, yeah, definitely. Interviewing them and seeing how they generally go about their, go about the work and things like that. You know, it's hard to spot a bad egg amongst them, which we haven't always necessarily been able to say about certain squads in the past. Um, these lots seem good guys, and and I hope that counts for something. And, and you know, you, you like to see good people succeed, don't you? So, let's hope we say that. I was just I was just thinking as well. They just going back to the goals briefly. Yeah. We've talked here for the best part of an hour or more. Mm-hmm. We've not mentioned the guy in the red jersey in '99 against Plymouth, have we? How have we managed to do that? Do, do you know what? It's one of these things. I'm trying not to mention Jamie Devitt on the Mode podcast now because we used to mention him every week for a bit. I've tried my hardest not to mention Jimmy Glass in this one and you've managed to get us to the end and I have. Um, sometimes you just try to, you know, look at something a little bit different. It's like we mentioned about the fact that covering the 1980s stuff, so yeah. much is talked about the Glasgow and quite rightly so. It's an incredible moment in history. But sometimes you need to give a bit more focus to the other parts of Cal United, I think. Yeah, you do. And you know what? It was it was bizarrely a little dilemma I had when I was doing the book as well. Um, I was doing my, my short list, and obviously that was that was clearly on it near the top. But I, I did think, is there any way I can do a chapter on Jimmy Glass and say anything that hasn't already been said? Can we tell this story another way? And is do I even think about leaving it out and doing another one? Maybe doing doing Brightwells that day, or just looking for something else? But but my wife just looked at me and said, "You're actually going to do a book about iconic Carlisle <laughs> United goals." We'll leave it out. She's not a football fan, uh, you know, but she knows Jimmy Glass and said, "You're not going to include Jimmy Glass. Are you being serious here?" And then, you know, as ever, I agreed with my wife. Realised I was being totally stupid and 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 rang Jimmy Glass and, you know, I'm glad I did because you know Jimmy's a really thoughtful guy and has has given a perspective on on everything that, that I don't know maybe hadn't before in in the same way so yeah you can't avoid Jimmy Glass and you shouldn't but you're right you're right there's a lot of other great moments that that sort of sit in its shadow a little bit so it's nice to bring those out too definitely cheers John thanks very much for your time and uh, up the blues pleasure Lee thanks for having me.